All right, I think we'll go ahead and get started. So today we're gonna to be on session 20. So if you don't have that new session sheet, uh, we will need that. We're gonna be doing a little bit of a recap, going back just to Acts chapter 11 to remind us of what's going on in Antioch here at this time. Uh, and then we're gonna be forging ahead into chapter 12 and 13. Uh, so I think we'll just go ahead and, and dive right in uh, starting with Acts 11, verse 19. So, Nick, if you would want to start, and we can go just verse by verse. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution of the Rosa traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. There were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, who occupied the Antioch trip to this. Verse 21, 11, 21, in Acts. Yep. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he was found, he brought him to Antioch. So for the whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. Are we in uh, Acts eleven twenty one? Oh, yeah, no, Acts five twenty six. No. Oh, okay. Uh, that's where he told them. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and it sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Uh, I love, you lost me because the, this version is different. What verse are you on? Verse 25, please. Okay. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so we have the church being established in Antioch. Um, first, starting with the Jews, and then later on, the, the Hellenists were preached to. Do you recall what a Hellenist is? A Greek Jew. A Greek Jew, right. They didn't have the, the bloodline of, that the Jews did, but they had the faith that the Jews did. So that was like the second stepping stone, going first from the Jews, who would already have known the Old Testament and would have all, already known all the prophecies and everything regarding the Christ. Uh, then the second logical step would be preaching it to the Hellenists, who also believed these same things, just did not have the same lineage. So the church grew very quickly. They called for Barnabas to come to kind of support them, like, hey, we need some more help here. And Barnabas came, saw what was going on, and was like, this is awesome. You know, keep doing this. This is great. Uh, and it says, verse 26, uh, For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas saw everything great going on. He went and fetched Saul, so that way he could get in on all of this and help them uh, grow the church in Antioch. And it was successful. So that's... That's where we're at right now, and we're going to continue with this, uh, this train of thought here, going directly into chapter 12, starting with verse 25, and reading through till chapter 13, verse 3. So I think we'll go ahead and, and read uh, starting at 1225. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. In Antioch. 
Okay. So we have somebody mentioned here uh, in verse 25 of chapter 12, John, whose other name was Mark. Now, we are not 100% sure, but this could be the author of the Gospel of Mark. But what we are 100% sure of, this is not the author of the Gospel of John. Uh, So those are two different people. The author of Mark is, I think, a little bit of a mystery uh, in church history. We're not entirely sure who exactly it was. There's a lot of different theories that uh, go around. Thankfully, the authorship of it and uh, exactly who wrote it does not negate or change the actual message of Mark. Uh, So it's not an obstacle to our faith. It's just kind of an interesting question that we Christians ponder. So that's uh, Mark is this guy who he's going to be assisting the disciples. And we're going to see this a little bit more. He's not really a pastor. He's not uh, a prophet. He's not like one of the apostles or anything like that. Uh, He's just a guy who's there to help them out with anything that they need. And we'll see this later on. Exactly. I was setting him up for that one. It was a softball. So, uh, (laughs) um, yeah, so he's this vicar type guy who's there to learn and to assist them with whatever it is that they need. Um, Let's see. So we have Paul then. At this time, this is an interesting thing to to note because we're also going to be covering the changing of the name of Saul to Paul today. Uh, Up to this point, Saul is still called Saul uh, by Luke. It's he, he tries to keep this kind of clear. Oh, they, he went and got Saul and brought them here. He went and got Saul and brought them over here. Saul was sent off over here to do this. And in our reading today, we're going to cover Saul being also called Paul in relation to the mission and uh, his pastorship, his coming into his real calling, his true calling. Uh, So we have Saul that was called, he he was ordained at some point. We're not entirely sure when, right? Um, It doesn't tell us because we have other points within Acts so far where people have been ordained. People, uh, the other pastors or apostles or disciples went and laid hands on people and then they were sent off to go and do a thing. They were ordained and then sent to their call. Uh, At some point, Saul was ordained as a pastor to go and help preach the word of God and help grow the church. And so here he is now in Antioch helping to grow the church. Again, it's important to note what was Saul's faith before this point, before he was converted to Christianity. He was Jewish. Now, was he a half-baked Jew? Was he uh, kind of lukewarm and, you know, he would only go during the festivals, he would go to church during the festivals? Or was he a little more hardcore? Pretty hardcore. Yes, and he testifies to this fact in many of his epistles. He talks about how I was, I was the best of Jews. You know, I did everything that they asked. I followed all the laws. And evidenced by that, he rose up in the ranks of the Jewish hierarchy very quickly at a young age. So he has a lot of knowledge already. So this is not something or like a case where Saul came into the Christian faith and it's like, oh, wow, okay, we're going to teach you. uh, We're going to have you just go through confirmation really quick. That's all the information that you have. And then we're going to set you loose. Saul was already very learned in the scriptures. All it took for him was this revelation from Jesus on the road to Damascus and some teaching from the apostles and from the disciples. And now Saul is like ready to go. He's raring to go, as we could could say. So now he's a big help to them in Antioch. And as we're going to see, he's going to be another great help to the disciples and the early church as he gets sent off to Cyprus as well. 
Um, the church grew in Antioch. We have other people mentioned here. Barnabas, who we've already heard a few times. He's uh, a man of great faith, and he was, the one, he was one of the people who helped start the church in Antioch. And he uh, admonished them to stay faithful to the church and to continue growing and to continue going to church and spreading the gospel. We have uh, Simeon Niger. I don't think that we know a whole lot about him. Just from his name, uh, Simeon, also called Niger, he was probably uh, darker skinned from the area of northern Africa. Do you have more info on that, Pastor? I think uh, you're probably right, and I think that's an important thing to point out, that uh, already at this point the church is uh, not distinguishing between those things that are oftentimes issues with us. They don't neglect people because of their it's crossing cultural boundaries very quickly. Um, that was most likely jump-started by Peter and the vision that Peter got and his preaching to the, uh, the centurion. So that, that teaching or vision from God caught on very quickly. Um, it was accepted, and that's, that's the way it is. And I think that's also going to be evidenced by the fact that they're now about to send missionaries out for the actual purpose of preaching to Gentiles, not just to Jews and not just to Hellenists, you know, people of the Jewish faith without the actual bloodline. Uh, so that's, that's kind of an important thing to note as we go along here. We also have uh, Menaean, who I think it notes that he was a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, or in other translations it will say he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas that we have already talked about uh, quite a bit. So he was kind of, uh, he, he grew, they grew up together. Obviously Herod Antipas was not quite as good of guy <laughs> as Menaean was, evidenced by the fact that Menaean is now part of the church and helping to grow the church. And then the last guy that is mentioned here would be Saul of Tarsus, who we all know and love. Um, now, moving on into, believe, chapter 13, the beginning of 13 here, I want to take a look at verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, what does this kind of mean? What are they doing here when the Holy Spirit uh, talks to them and tells them to set apart these two men? They're worshiping. They're worshiping. Yeah. It was during the divine service. It doesn't say which part. Um, it could have been, you know, during the Kyrie or during the Sanctus or something like that. We don't know. <laughs> uh, but it was while they were worshiping God, the Holy Spirit came. It doesn't give us any more information than the Holy Spirit said, whether that was by the mouth of one of the disciples, whether it was uh, by some kind of vision or you know, kind of like Peter had or anything like that. All we know is that this came from the Holy Spirit. And we can be certain of that. Why? Because the Bible says so. Because the Bible says so. Uh, if it was anything else, it would have been, you know, that it would have been told to us that way. This person said, these two people should go. This wasn't just a decision of the church. This wasn't like the elders coming together and deciding that these two men should be set apart for this reason or anything. This here was the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that spoke this. And Paul himself, uh, this was a big deal to him. He mentions this in several of his other letters that he was set apart by the Holy Spirit. This is the event that he's talking about. Like, for example, the beginning of Romans. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ, uh, set apart in order to, etc., etc. So that's what he's talking about, is this event here, when he was set apart by the Holy Spirit, from the mouth of the Holy Spirit. Anything else to add there? No, I, I think, uh, jump a little bit ahead, 
And so here we see Paul getting a call. He's serving the church in Antioch, and now he's getting a call to serve as a missionary. And he's going to be installed into that call. And this is all, keep in the back of your mind, when we can talk about how we do the same thing. We, we aren't inventing things when we call and install pastors into a particular ministry. So, jumping ahead, sorry. Yeah, we're jumping ahead there. Um, <laughs> so let's highlight a couple quick Greek words, and then we'll get right back to what Pastor was saying there. So we have leitergunta'on, uh, meaning worship. So that's where we get our word liturgy from. When people talk about the liturgy, they can kind of be talking about different things. Um, sometimes people say, oh, you have a liturgical church service. I'm sure you've heard that before. And they are referencing the fact that we uh, do chanting. We have a very, we have this church service. Like here, we have divine service setting three that's been passed down through uh, the church and through the Book of Common Prayer and all these different things for hundreds of years. The, the way that we worship here has been done this way for literally hundreds of years by the Christian church. Divine service setting three is not some kind of novel innovation from the Lutheran service book, the hymnal that we use right now. So that's what people could be saying when they say, oh, you have a liturgical worship service, also called a traditional worship service and things like that. Um, but really, what the word liturgy means is just worship, a public worship service. So take that, uh, take that how you will. Liturgy is just worship. So when we're talking about specific things within our worship service, uh, chanting and things like that, that is all liturgy, but technically anything done to worship God is liturgy. And that's what uh, we're getting that word from, is that, that word liturguntone. Uh, so we have a church service that's been established at this time by the church where they all get together very purposefully to worship God. And then we have this other word, aphorosate. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 13, 49, um, which is just talking about people being set apart for the purpose of going to heaven versus people going to hell. And in Matthew, where is it, 25, 32 as well, describing, again, the judgment. Um, is that the sheep and the goats when he's talking about that? Uh, where he's saying that the sheep will be set apart from the goats, the sheep on his right hand going to heaven, the goats on his left hand going to hell. So this, this word, uh, to set apart, is used quite a bit by God, and it's being used here in a divine sense as well. These men are being set apart not as a separate class of person. That's an important thing to note. A lot of times when people think of the apostles or the disciples or anything like that, they think of St. Paul. Oh, wow. He was so amazing. He was so much holier than anybody else. Well, why do, they, why do people typically think of that? Because of his actions, because of all the amazing things that Paul did, all the letters that he wrote. Um, it's very easy to slip into that way of thinking that someone like any of the apostles, any of the disciples were holier than anybody else. Now, is that true? Is Paul holier than Pastor Moline, for example, or Leonard or Nick or Karen or anybody here at all? No. Why? Where does that holiness come from? comes from God. So that's, I think that's important to note. Paul is still a sinner. Um, so him being set apart by God does not make him perfect or more perfect than anyone else. Uh, it just means that he's being set apart for a specific purpose by God. And then that brings us right back around to uh, what Pastor Moline was talking about. Pastors, they're not a different class of people. Sorry, Pastor Moline, but not, not better than anybody else, even vicars. Um, <laughs> we're, all, we're all sinners. Um, 
It just means that they've been set apart for a specific purpose. And what is that purpose? To serve the Lord, to teach the Word of God. And there's one other very important thing that only pastors do. And what is that? Administer the gifts or the sacraments. You know, they are the ones that have been set apart to uh, consecrate the elements in the name of Jesus. I think of Paul as standing out because as Saul, he was such the opposite of what he became. I mean, to me, that's why he stands out so much. Yeah, and that brings up an excellent point. Thank you. Um, so in the Catholic Church, of course, we know they, they kind of, uh, they have saints that, whether you want to call it praying to the saints or invoking their names in their prayer or what have you, um, the Catholic Church thinks of saints as people who are kind of a different class of person. They have performed <coughs> miracles uh, for God. God has worked through them. So... They are now sainted. They are above everybody else. Do we view people the same way here in the Lutheran Church? Who, who are saints? Here? Everyone. Everyone. Why? Because we're a family of God. Yes, because we're all a family of God, because we have all been made holy by God. We've all put on the righteousness of Christ. So, in that sense, we are all the same because we all have that same righteousness of Christ. Now, having established that, does that mean that uh, the saints that are viewed by the Catholic Church, these, you know, for example, church fathers or all these very famous figures throughout church history, does that mean that we just throw them all away and say, ah, those guys aren't important, we don't even look at them, we... You know, their names are dirt in our mouths or anything like that. Do we just throw all of that away? No. Why, why could saints be useful to us here today? Set an example. Because they set an example. Thank you, Ken. Um, we can still look at the lives of the saints. We can look at some of the amazing things that they have done. You know, great acts of charity or sacrifice or things like that. And we can use that as a good example. And we can do the same thing with Paul. Paul, or Saul, when he was called Saul, he was a great antagonist person, figure, uh, against the church. He, you know, murdered Christians, had them murdered, and he preached against Christ constantly. But we can use him as an example. God still used this really evil person for his own purpose. And he changed him to be a really great Christian that we learn a lot of lessons from. You know, I don't know if you've ever talked to anybody about, you know, hey, you should come to my church sometime, and they've responded in this way, oh, if I walked into church, I would burst into flames. You know, I've, I've heard that, like, several times from several different people. They literally will say that, you know, not really joking that much. You know, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek, but... I say, oh no, if I walked into church, I'd burst into flames. Really thinking that because they've done all these bad things, God hates them. And that they aren't really forgivable. We can use Paul as a great example. He did all these terrible, horrible things to Christians. And yet, he can still be used by God for a greater purpose. All of those sins were still forgiven. And now... He's going to be a, a great ally of the church. Well, so That's why the way God looks at his children and how we look at ourselves and our children, it's always, they, they base it on our actions, what they see. And, and so many times you get accused of being holier than thou because you don't do this or you don't do that. Or you do do this and you do do that. But, uh, right, and getting called hypocrites all the time. Well, yeah, there's a lot of times you're called hypocrites too. But I mean, that's usually if they've seen you do something that they think that you're not 
would never do like right they'll and they'll say things uh, that's not very christian of you yeah. right and you know they'll think that because you're christian you should be perfect mm -hmm. of course not true um we should try our best to do things. doesn't mean that we're not going to mess up. In fact, we are. But the difference between every Christian and anyone else is that Christians seek that forgiveness for everything they've done wrong in Christ uh, rather than anything else. Christians don't try to make up for their past mistakes by being good. Christians look to Christ to be forgiven for those past mistakes. Um, all right, great discussion. We're going to keep on moving on. Uh, looking then at this word, uh, proskeklemai, that is, it's in a perfect tense. So in the Greek, there's a lot of different tenses and a lot of different ways to say things. Verbs are uh, just a nightmare. They're a headache in Greek, and a lot of time is spent trying to teach you how to uh, parse verbs. So the perfect tense here is, like it says on the sheet, it's a completed past action with present abiding results. So they have been called. That's something that happened in the past, and now it is continuing on. They have been called for this purpose. They are still called right now, and they will continue to be called in the future. And going back once again to the ordination of pastors. Uh, one thing that I didn't really realize very much before I went to seminary, um, when you are ordained as a pastor, as long as you know everything goes well and uh, you don't commit any scandals and get kicked out as a pastor, right? Um, <laughs> you continue to be a pastor. Even after you retire, you're still called pastor and you still are a pastor because that's your calling. You continue to spread the word of God, just kind of in a different capacity. And after pastors are retired, they can still be asked to go and fill a vacancy over here. Or, you know, hey, come back and uh, preach a sermon. Fill in for me this Sunday so I can take a vacation or what have you. Uh, so that word in the perfect tense reinforces our idea that pastors, once ordained, should continue to be pastors until they die. That's not something that stops just because you retire or anything like that. Now we're moving into the idea of uh, by whom pastors are called. Talking about the call process a little bit. You've, have you heard of the difference between the internal call and the external call? Okay, so when, I, I'll just speak from my own experience here, because that's what I know the best. Before I went to seminary, um, I talked to my pastor a lot about wanting to be a pastor. I heard everything that he preached and taught to us. Um, all, he was my pastor from the day I was born. He baptized me. He confirmed me, he married me, and he did the same thing with all of my brothers as well. And he's now going to marry my little brother on Sunday, so that's awesome. So he's been teaching the same things to us, uh, to me especially, ever since I was born. So I heard what he was teaching. You know, everyone, every eligible male should at least consider being a pastor and whether or not that would be a good calling for you. Um, and so I heard all of his teaching about it and what it means to be a pastor and why someone might want to be a pastor and everything and thought about it a lot and I was like, you know, I think that I would like to be a pastor. I really love theology and talking about the gospel with people, spreading the gospel. Um, and then as kind of a secondary, I always really liked public speaking. That was a lot of fun for me. I took seven years of speech and debate class, so uh, I was kind of good at it, and I really enjoyed it. I also really enjoyed music a lot, and I also always enjoyed helping my friends. Whenever my friends had uh, problems or 
you know, they could be any kind of problem. Problem with a girl or a boy or, you know, just relationship problems or friendship problems or anything. I was the guy they always came and talked to, and I really enjoyed helping them. Uh, I gave them all kinds of advice and stuff like that. And so I was talking to my pastor about this one day, and he's like, you should really think about being a pastor. And I was like, you know, I have been. I've been thinking about it a lot because you've been teaching me this my entire life. And so that's the internal call, is kind of thinking about it, considering it very carefully and very prayerfully, and uh, then going, I think I'd like to be a pastor. That's the internal call telling me that you should go to seminary and at least try. And that's, that's where I'm at right now. I'm in the process of determining whether or not I should really be a pastor. Uh, that's done by going to seminary, learning, being taught all the different things about the Bible, um, and then going on vicarage and determining if I have the aptitude to be a pastor, if I have the skills and everything necessary. And then once I get finished with seminary, and if I pass all of that, that is when it'll be determined whether I should get the external call. The external call is what Pastor Moline has and what Pastor Poppy has and what uh, Pastor Russert has. That's the church calling them to be a pastor. So after you go through seminary and you're confirmed, okay, yes, this man is eligible to be ordained and called as a minister of Christ. Uh, so then you're ordained. You're set apart for the purpose of God. And it's at that point that you are a pastor. Typically, ordination and uh, installation into the congregation where you're called happens at the same time when you are first ordained. So God willing, if I pass my vicarage um, and if I pass all the rest of my classes at seminary and everything, when I receive my first call from a church, then I'll be ordained as a pastor and then directly following that ordination, I will be installed as the pastor at that church, wherever I get called to. And that's how it happens. Um, and that's what's happening right here. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for my purposes these two men. Now, they are already ordained, but they are getting called for the purpose of being missionaries, specifically missionaries to all of the, the Greeks, the non-Jews of the historic world. Whew. That's a lot of talking. What else do you have to add, Pastor? What did I mess up? Well, I, I think you said everything exactly right. And it's the way that it happens now. So, technically, Pastor Poppy or I can receive a call at any time from any congregation. Mm -hmm. And should that happen, and we go to that congregation, we would be installed by laying our hands at the pastors in that local area to serve in that specific place. And that's kind of the way it works for missionaries, for pastors, for everybody. Uh, uh, that's the process, and it comes here to us from the book of Acts, where we see it taking place with Paul and Barnabas. Okay, any questions or comments or thoughts before we move on to our next section of Acts? Um, I think that the first time it, I really, like, my ear kind of perked up when Pastor was talking about it when it was when I was 12. Wow. Yep. And Pastor was talking about how every young man should consider this. It's not, that does not mean that every young man should be a pastor, uh, but it should go through the minds of every young man. And I was like, wait a second. I'm a young man. Does that mean I should be thinking about this? <laughs> so... Yeah, um, there are a lot of people like that um, all throughout church history. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy named Wilhelm Lea. Uh, he was very instrumental in starting the Lutheran Church here in America, specifically the Missouri Synod. He was a very faithful pastor over in Germany, and he got placed into 
Well, I should, that, that part's not relevant, sorry. <laughs> Why I bring him up. Ever since he was like a little kid, he pretended to be the pastor and he would play church with all of his friends where he was the pastor and he'd put on like some kind of uh, robe type thing and he'd be preaching to all of his friends. And his mom was like, I think that you're going to be a pastor one day. And he's like, dang right, I'm going to be a pastor one day. And it's like, you're, he's five when he was doing all of this. And he wanted to be a pastor ever since he was little. Yep, I've heard that before too. Yep, they like to play pretend. I never did any of that kind of thing, thankfully. Since I was 12, that would be a little out of character. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that happens all the time, and it's something that every young man should consider. And every pastor should talk to their young people in the congregation about it, too. What are the questions? What are the comments? Well, what about fasting? I see fasting is yeah. Uh, so fasting was a pretty regular thing that people would do just to help focus on the word, on what was being taught and everything. A lot of times in all throughout history, Christians would fast before they take the Lord's Supper, um, just so that way, you know, it, it wouldn't do anything extra. It's not like people, people's sins were extra forgiven because they fasted. Is just an act of piety that they did uh, in order to focus on the word, not be distracted by cooking and eating and the meal time and all this kind of stuff. Um, right, they do that in Lent um, specifically to commemorate the fact that Jesus, during Lent, uh, during the forty days he was in the wilderness, he fasted. That's something that's kind of required slash commanded by the Catholic Church. We don't do that because it's just an act of piety, basically. If you want to do it and that helps you feel closer to God and the act of abstaining from mealtimes and from food and everything, if that helps you focus on God and be in the scripture more, like for example, instead of eating a meal, you read the Bible for that amount of time that you're going to eat instead. Those are all good and, and pious things to do. What else did you have to add to that, Pastor? I was just going to say, the Catechism talks about it in the section on the second of the altar where it says, certainly fasting and bodily preparation are fine outward training. Uh, and so it is a discipline that we can do, and there are members of our church that do fast, like on a Sunday morning, the first food they eat is communion or uh, things like that. Um, It'd be hard to do. Supplant it would be harder to do on like Wednesdays here at church, <laughs> not eating all day long until until the divine service. But that is something that a lot of people would do, and especially even back in the day, they would fast all day long, rather than just like not eating breakfast before going to church in the morning or something like that. That's a, a pious thing that people could do. I know some people at church that fast in Lent all day on Wednesday. Interesting. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that, that type of thing, like I said, is a perfectly fine practice if that's what you want to do. But it's certainly not commanded. Um, because really, the only things that are commanded are the things that, like, forgive our sins. We're commanded to go to church in order to hear the word. We are commanded to uh, pray to God, you know, cast all of our cares on him. We are commanded to baptize our, our people, whether they're babies or whether they're adults just coming into the faith. Um, Christ commanded, baptize. Or at the Lord's Supper, Christ commanded, do this. A lot of those other things, um, fasting, things like that, are not commanded. Because they're just pious things that we can do. We're free. But those things don't forgive our sins. They don't make us any holier, per se. Ashley, you had your hand up earlier. Did you have a, a question? Uh, yeah, the word set apart there, is it in the Greek the same word as the word holy, or is it a different word? That would be a different word. Uh, hagios would be holy in Greek. This is set apart for a specific purpose. That's a good question. I, I don't think so. Do you know off the top of your head, Pastor? Is which word? The word set apart. Are they set apart? They're set apart to be holy. That is specific to God. Right. So is it the same word then? I would have to be to look and see. It's the same idea. from the other things that are the same, right? So, um, we could, kids, right? If I ask the table, this group is set apart as an that group. And if this group was given a specific task to do your job, and that group differently, it would be set apart. And that's really what we're doing with the elements in communion. We're setting them apart to receive the word and to bring us Christ to God. Um, I, I don't think I said it's like tithing. Maybe um, fasting is uh, a pious thing to do. Maybe you misheard me when I said pious. Uh, it's just something that you can do for your own benefit if it helps you uh, to focus on the things that you're supposed to be focusing on. If, for example, I were to fast... Uh, whether it be for a, an entire particular day or whether it just be before the divine service, uh, before I receive communion or anything. And I went around and I told everyone, hey, everyone, I'm fasting before communion. Uh, I'm so great. Everybody should fast so you can be more like me. That would not be a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that would be me using my actions to make myself more righteous or at least appear more righteous. Uh, and that certainly would not be very helpful. Every boy would benefit. <laughs> right. It, it certainly certainly could. Uh, but if I were to fast before the divine service by not eating breakfast and instead reading the Bible and uh, praying, whether it be for myself or family or friends or anything like that, that could be a very good practice um, just because it would help me focus on God's word instead of using that time to eat or to have a meal or anything. That's all I mean. Does that clear that up? I think so. I, I was trying to correlate tithing with fasting. Okay, yeah. That, I would say that's uh, kind of different. Is, is it worth reading Matthew 6, 16, following? Jesus said, when you fast, do not look like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Yes, that's I mean, perfect. It's a good practice to do. 
It's not to gain accolades from people around you. It is to drive you closer to God. And, and like it said, the people who uh, did it at, back at that time, who did it and disfigured their faces and did it to appear very holy, to make everyone else think highly of them, that was their reward. And, and that's it. What, what is that reward really worth if other people just think that you're very holy? Is that worth anything at all? No, not really. Other people's... <laughs> uh, other people might think highly of you, but that's not really worth anything. Uh, now, if by doing that, by uh, fasting, it brings you closer to God, is that a good reward? Yes. Of uh, being able to strengthen your faith through doing something like that, that's a good reward. All right, we're going to keep on going, and I think we should be able to get through this next section here before our time is up, because time has gone quickly today. We're going to read Acts chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Are we starting over with Nick? I think, we're, I think we are to that point. Okay. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And they arrived at the land. Okay, so it is reiterating here. Who is it that sent them? The Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit sent them. Uh, it was not, I'm sure, I'm positive you've heard this kind of terminology before. Uh, God put this on my heart to go and fill in the blank. Um, my wife was subject to one of these people a few I guess it was a couple months ago now. She was sitting in a cafe talking to Olivia, my little brother's fiance, about her wedding. And so they were there talking and they were just kind of uh, relating to each other. Oh man, it's going to be very interesting having uh, both of our husbands be in seminary all at the same time. And they're just kind of talking about us, not saying anything bad or rude at all. And this guy comes up to her, to both of them, in this cafe where they're sitting. And he goes, so God just put this on my heart um, to come and speak to you ladies. And I'm so sorry to interrupt your friendship time here. Um, but you know, if you're having problems with your husbands, you should just forgive them. You should just put on your grace glasses and look at your husbands through that because they're not perfect. Um, and God really wants us to love each other. So, I'm, and I'm not a pastor. I'm just thinking about going to school to be a pastor. And I just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to tell you, please just put on your grace glasses and look at your husbands that way and just forgive them. And they're like, what? It's like, well, God just put this on my heart to just tell you that you should really be loving your husbands. And they're like, we didn't say anything bad about our husbands. What are you talking about? He's like, well, I just want to just come over because God put this on my heart and it was just weighing very heavily on me. It's like, <laughs> what is going on? So, I mean, I'm sure that you've heard of this kind of thing if you haven't been witness to it yourself. Uh, people use this language that say, God put this on my heart. Now, could that technically be true? Could God be urging people to do something? Yes, God can do things like that. Um, but is just that feeling evidence that God is really telling you to do all of these things? No. What kind of... Go ahead. I was going to say, how do you know that these guys actually had a call? The church said right. that the Holy Spirit is sending you here and they laid hands on them and Put them in that office. Right. That's where I was going with it. Is that, that feeling alone is not enough to uh, make you go out and do crazy things. Um, that feeling alone is not enough to make you a pastor. The church ordaining you uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I should say. The Holy Spirit working through the church ordaining men. That is what makes people a pastor. It's not... In here. Okay. That was kind of a tangent. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but we did. 
Um, going back to our sheet then, point 2A. Again, who sent them? It was the Holy Spirit. Point 1. Uh, there are some who say today that the Holy Spirit and the Trinity were a later invention of Christianity. However, you see the role of the Spirit already here in the earliest of missionary work. Oh, man. This, this could take up all of our time now and all of next session, too, <laughs> depending on how far we would want to get into this. Um, so maybe I'll just be kind of brief about it, and if we want to have more conversation about it, we can. Is the Trinity uh, a relatively recent invention in church history? No. Uh, in fact, we've had a lot of readings in church recently from like John 14, 15, and 16, right? And does Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit as if it's just some kind of power of God? No. Like in John 16, I believe Jesus says... The Holy, I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and when he comes, then all of these things will happen, right? Jesus talks about him literally as a distinct person, not simply like the power of God. That's what a lot of people will think of the Holy Spirit as. The power of, Holy, the, like, the, power of the Father is just the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is just uh, the Father doing things, and that's the way that they talked about him. no. The Father is a distinct person. Jesus always talks about, you know, the Father as distinct from himself. He also identifies himself as God while also being distinct from the Father. And then Jesus also talks about the Holy Spirit as being a distinct person from the Father and from himself as going and doing other things. So this accusation that the Holy Spirit is uh, not a member of the Trinity and that the Trinity was just made up by Christians later on. It's completely unfounded. There's a lot of mental gymnastics that have to happen in order for people to have this view. So, excursus? Excursus. I think that's just uh, excursion. Like, as a side note, by the way, this isn't directly uh, the point of this reading here. But as a side note, people think that the Holy Spirit is not a distinct member of the Trinity. He really is because he's being talked about here. The Holy Spirit said this as a distinct member of the Trinity. And I believe the Holy Spirit God says that's his purpose, isn't it? What does Luther say in the small catechism in the third part of the Apostles' Creed, right where it talks about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit calls, gathers, enlightens and sanctifies the whole Christian church on earth. So yes, the Holy Spirit uh, can lead people to do things. Um, I think that's probably a little less common than what people would say, uh, but and I would say it's also probably different than what people have in their heads. Um, when the Holy Spirit guides somebody to do something, they don't like get a little flame in their heart that's like, oh, I need to go and do this. Or people don't go into a trance and start speaking in tongues just because the Holy Spirit is on them and, and doing this type of thing, right? Um, the Holy Spirit guides us primarily how? Through the Word. So wherever the Word is, that's where the Holy Spirit is working. Um, that's primarily how the Holy Spirit guides us. Yeah, uh, the Bible talks about that a lot, too, the enlightened conscience. Once you become a Christian and you learn more about the Word and what the Word says to people, uh, then the Christian's conscience is transformed by that. It informs us more and more about right and wrong. So in that way, the Holy Spirit would be working through your conscience. That Maybe you didn't know before that it's bad to lie to people or about people, but upon becoming a Christian learning about the Eighth Commandment, uh, learning that lying is wrong, then you go, oh, lying really is wrong. Uh, I didn't know that before, but now I know. That could be one way that the Holy Spirit is guiding your conscience. You have anything else to add to that, Pastor? I don't want to monopolize that conversation. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, go ahead, Nick. I have one more question, too. Um, it, I, I was just looking... While they were worshiping 
how they worshiping they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit says this, and then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, could, could the praying and fasting be a way of of um, trying the the church before? Before this question of whether this was indeed the Holy Spirit who was giving this. That's a great question, yeah. Um, what, what kind of things do you think that they would be praying about before ordaining some people? That, let me ask that question of you. What they would be praying about? Well, the, big, the real question is whether this is the Holy Spirit that's, that's speaking to them. Right. So a lot of times, as Christians, we don't get direct uh, revelation from the Holy Spirit. So we pray that whatever action we do is according to the will of God. So I would say that here, they're praying that after this revelation of the Holy Spirit, they're praying that, okay, uh, they're praying this is the will of God. They're praying for these men that they are about to send off on this missionary trip. Uh, praying that everything they do is according to the will of God. Whether or not they were trying to discern if this really was the will of the Spirit, I don't know. I don't know if we could uh, speak to that too much, just because it's not all that clear right here. Well, it's clear after the fact, when Luke is writing this all out, that this was the Holy Spirit who had told them. Right. Uh, but he also makes the point that they don't just hop right to it and set these guys apart. They fast and pray. Yeah, they do this. After fasting and praying, yeah. they lay their hands on them. They do this uh, decently and in good order. They don't go, oh, revelation from the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, guys. We'll see you later. They go, okay, revelation from the Holy Spirit. And again, we don't know exactly what form this took. We just know that it was the Holy Spirit that said this. Um, then they, they fast in order to come closer to God, in order to uh, focus on what his will is. And then they pray, likely just to bless whatever work they're about to do, and pray that whatever it is they are about to do is the will of God. That would be uh, the closest and most comfortable thing that I could say regarding that. Anything else? Uh, any other questions or comments? Because we're pretty close to um, the end, I'll cover cover real quick, just talk about, uh, they traveled by boat. You can look at that little map on, on your sheet there. They went from Antioch to Seleucia. That was the really big port in the area. They took a ship. Typically, they didn't just like have passenger ships or cruisers or anything like that. It was... Like, hey, you guys are shipping some stuff over to Cyprus. Um, can we tag along as part of your cargo? We'll pay you a little bit, and you can get us there. And they'd say, yeah, sure, okay, that's fine. Uh, so they travel over to Cyprus. They get to Salamis, the port on Cyprus closest to them. And then they begin by, once again, preaching to the Jews, starting with the Jews because they already have this foundation of the Old Testament and they would be the most likely to accept this new teaching about the Christ. And then again, it, it, uh, the study says, Mark assisted, think vicar. So Mark was not a pastor. He was more like a vicar being trained to be a pastor and, and spread the gospel. And I think that'll get us to... Uh, Large point three for next time. Any other questions or thoughts or pastor? Do you want to add anything to cap off anything else that I've said? Okay. Then we will pray the Lord's Prayer together to close. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.